Hey, you're here. Yeah, you. Welcome to Rock Crit, a podcast about rock criticism and old school fanzine culture. My name is Armin Savagin. I'm glad you're here, and I hope you'll join us every couple of weeks as we explore the past, present, and future of rock criticism. That song you heard, by the way, is Eternal Hair by San Diego's supergroup Octagrape. A massive thanks to their frontman Glenn Galloway for letting us use it. Glenn used to play in the bands Soul Junk and Truman's Water and was also a rock writer back in the day, a really original one, in fact. And that name again is Octagrape. You may be wondering the point of yet another podcast on rock music. Listen, I get that the world is flush with these things. Our favorite musicians don't exactly need the extra ego juice. Here at Rockrit, we want to give rock writers their propers. So every two weeks, we'll feature an interview with a rock critic. Pro and fanzine-level writers alike, it doesn't matter. If they've stoked my love for music, I'll be knocking on their door. And in true fanzine fashion, we'll cover the stuff I like. I have heaps of love for what many geeks see as the golden age of rock writing, the 1970s. Pre-punk scenes like Backdoor Man, Shaken Street Gazette, Bambalam, as well as early punk scenes like Slash, Next Big Thing, Negative Reaction. The 80s and 90s were also a fertile period for fanzines. I'm talking ugly things, conflict, forced exposure, your flesh, away from the pulse beat, hit it or quit it, the kind of stuff you see covered in the effing record reviews Tumblr. Look it up. I haven't forgotten semi-obscure stuff from around the world. Australia and New Zealand, I'm looking at you. And of course, writers whose bylines used to pop up in more mainstream places like Cream, Sound, Zigzag, plus folks who are writing today, online and in print. Anyway, I hope that gives you some flavor of what we're about. In this first episode, we talk to Jay Hinman, who's been championing sub-underground sounds for three decades now. Maybe you know Jay through his 90s zine Superdope, or his current music podcast and print scene, Dynamite Hemorrhage. Even though he's a strictly one-man operation, Jay manages to cover a lot of ground. First-generation LA punk, dub, transcendent Kiwi pop, post-punk, underground labels and fanzines. While Jay may have better taste and a bigger record collection than most of us, he's not rubbing it in our faces. Jay is a non-elitist all the way. Mighty rare in underground circles. His writing's got a windy, winding, sense of wonder quality about it that's just waiting to turn you on to some great new and archival music. I'm pleased as anything Jay agreed to talk with us. He's hyper-articulate and a natural raconteur. And lucky you, my girlish laughter and I mostly keep out of his way. Please enjoy this conversation with Jay Super Dope Hinman on Rock Rit. Maybe we can start at the beginning. Can you describe young Jay Hinman's musical journey and when fanzines and music criticism kind of entered the picture for you? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, so fanzines, the very first one I bought, I remember taking a bus trip from my parents' house in San Jose to this record store in Los Gatos, California called Do Re Mi. And I picked up my very first copy of Maximum Rock and Roll and my very first copy of a local fanzine called Ripper. And they were both a little scary. There was a guy named Sid Terror on the cover and he was in this band named Un- The Undead. That was the the Ripper fanzine. And kind of bringing them home, I kind of had to hide them underneath some clothes because I didn't really want my parents to see, you know, this crazy <laughs> stuff that I was into. But of course, I was just, you know, I was, I was floored by everything I was reading. I was also listening to the Maximum Rock and Roll radio show every Tuesday night on KPFA in Berkeley. And that was, you know, blowing my mind with all sorts of cool stuff. So from there, it went on as far as fanzines go, not really fanzines, but underground music stuff. I bought a lot of the English papers, the sounds and the enemy and melody maker. We had a store in San Jose that would carry those. It'd be like two months old, but they were still really cool. And they had all sorts of lists of 45s that I wanted to buy. So yeah, and I just, of course, it snowballed from there once I got a little bit older uh, in high school and then in college. And that's when I really discovered the, the various American fanzines uh, that were available at, at weird record stores. And when did you get the idea of starting your own fancy? Did you do any writing for other zines before starting your own? 
No, I mean, I was always wanting to be a contributor at some level. So I did a college radio show when I um, started college in 1985 uh, in Santa Barbara. And so I did that for four years and I wrote for the school paper a little bit and realized that I could string a couple sentences together about music. And I thought, well, this is kind of fun. And that by that point, I was so immersed in like forced exposure and conflict and, and other magazines like that, that really spoke to me and helped form my musical taste. And I wanted to do something similar once I graduated from college. And so I, about a year after college, I started Super Dope 1991 and did the first issue then, another seven issues from there all the way up through 1998. And it was just a matter of, well, I'm not contributing on the radio anymore, so let's do this. I even tried to be in a band for a while, and that was clearly not the right path. So I, that, that, only, that only lasted a year. And Any evidence of the band out there? No. I think there's a practice tape somewhere, but uh, no, no. Just people's, just people's memories. <laughs> <laughs> so you started as you mentioned super dope in 1991 um, right. i was i was reading through because you've got all the pdfs online just reading through it the other day most scenes first issues are tentative at best um i definitely don't want to go uh anybody digging up my zine past but as debuts go super dope number one was actually really stellar like solid confident writing on good bands that you wouldn't be embarrassed about from you and contributors you guys had like a definite justified swagger. You had ads from legit labels. So how come you get to not be embarrassed by your zine past? How did you get- Oh, don't say that. Oh, that's not true at all. But please go go, go on. <laughs> how, how did you, it felt like you guys had your act together from the get-go. Was it really well-planned? Did you say, we wanted, like, I want to do this. I want to do it properly and go into it with some intentionality. There was- no, I mean, there was intentionality. I mean, I think that I was definitely a follower. I did not do anything that dozens of others around me weren't also already doing. Um, but I mean, I was just kind of immersed in music and I was buying lots of records and I had the time after work. And what's funny is, is back then, like desktop publishing, if you didn't have your own computer and most people didn't have, I don't even know if there was such thing as laptops in the early nineties, maybe there were, but I would actually drag a giant desktop computer home from work and put it in one of those enormous cases and like lug it into the parking lot. They were super cool about me doing that. I'd bring it <laughs> home and I would, and I would put it all on a floppy disk and then I would come back to work and then print it from the floppy disk. It was, you know, the only font I think that was available back then was Times New Roman. So I've only used Times New Roman ever since then, <laughs> which is pretty funny. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's how I did it. And I, I think the idea was just to document all the stuff that I was listening to. I mean, I always love the idea of curation and, and if I can turn somebody onto something that I'm excited about the way I've been turned onto things in the, you know, during all my kind of musical freakdom, then that's, that's what it's all about. And I, I, I like what you say about the first issue. I think the first two issues, I'm a little, I cringe a little bit when I go back and look at them, which is not that often, but when I do look at it, it's like, it looks like a 22 year old writing about music and, you know, still trying to figure it all out. And it's exactly what it was. No, it was incredibly well done. I like, I don't see it felt fully formed in a way not a huge contrast between what you're doing then and what you're up to now at least at least from where i'm standing yeah well that shows a lack of evolution then but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no a lack of growth be, no some it's, people are just born ready to do you're all born thing. with it man born with it it's Absolutely. in me <laughs> and you i read that you quit doing super dope a bunch of times kind of in the 90s before you finally called it quits in 1998. Was that just a matter of I'm sick of lugging this heavy desktop back and forth or just other reasons where you're like, no, ah, I'm not feeling so much. 
Well, it's probably that. I mean, I, I can be very petulant at times. And I think one of the things about doing a fanzine where you have you take in ads and if you take in contributions from other people is that there's then and when you have distributors that are kind of counting on you, there's then people that are reliant on you. And I think what is fun about doing a fanzine when you don't have all those things, which is the way I have it now, is you don't have to really rely on anybody. If you want to publish once every three years, you can do that. If you want to publish up once every three weeks, you can do that. But back then, I would get an ad from, I don't know, what was it? Scat Records. I'm just thinking of like who was around in the 90s, um, Merge Records, Matador. And then I would feel this immense pressure to like finish the magazine because they'd sent me this ad that I'd requested and they paid for it, of course. And so now all of a sudden I've got to get this thing out and that would really stress me out because then I've got to like finish all the record reviews and I've got to finish the interviews and I got to lay the whole thing out in my, you know, total DIY homespun way that I was doing it. And I, I think I just got fed up with that. And so sometimes I'll just petulantly, and I do this with my podcast all the time, like I'm done, I quit. <laughs> and, and, and then I come back, you know, like two months pass. I'm like, oh, I really miss doing that. And then I'll announce this big return. So I've decided never to do that again. <laughs> just to, I'm either just going to like, I'm either going to do my final podcast and fanzine and then you won't know it's the final until like seven years have gone by. You're like, hey, I don't think that guy's posted in a long time. <laughs> just disappear, eh? Exactly. Disappearing act. Irish Irish exit. I love it. Uh, where do you see Super Dope? Not that you probably think about these things, but... Just humor me. Where do you see Superdope fitting into the 90s underground kind of zine galaxy when you think about your zine and your peers at the time? You know, I think it fits in fairly well. Like I said, I was kind of a follower. So um, I was just doing, you know, going with whatever my tastes were at the time, as many other, you know, one person zines were doing. So my tastes at the time were very sort of garage punk heavy. I liked a lot of really offbeat indie 45s. Uh, I was really into the New Zealand underground, which was kind of burgeoning there in the early part of the 1990s, noisy sort of avant rock, whatever. And you know, that was just documenting my taste. And that's what I think the best zines did was just, this is what I really like. I hope you like it too. Let me see if I can convey a sense of why I like it so much. Like, so my favorite bands at the time were bands like uh, the Thinking Fellers Union and Clawhammer and the Gories and um, the Nights and Days and Night Kings, High Rise, stuff like that. And so I tried to champion them all as best I could. And I think, you know, in retrospect, it probably fits in as one of many, many, many 80s and 90s music fanzines, but hopefully one of the better ones. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. And other people would agree, too. Is it odd to see issues of Super Dope fetching collector prices on eBay and elsewhere? I, you know, I have seen some pretty high prices for it, but then again, I mean, when, when you think about it, it's now what, almost 30 years on and it was limited in quantity. Um, half the issues that were printed probably have ended up in recycling or garbage bins. And, and also, you know, those of us that were around then, it speaks to you know, people's nostalgia about the music of the nineties, whether it was from their youth or something that they now want to experience vicariously. Um, there was this thing that a friend told me about she was at the la book fair the los angeles book fair a few years ago and they had a complete set of the super dope issues for eight hundred dollars and she went and checked at the end of the show and it hadn't sold yet but i still thought the fact that it was even out there first that somebody had cobbled together a complete set and that they were selling it for eight hundred dollars i thought it was absolutely amazing um I didn't, I never thought about that at the time. I was a moron and I started selling back it, <laughs> back issues of my issues over the years. And I didn't keep count of what I had left. And so there's a couple issues now where I only have one copy of the issue. And I had, I, I had to buy one myself on eBay of another one of the issues because I realized, you know, if I lose this one or if it gets soiled, then I don't have this at all. But as you said, they're all scanned as PDFs and they can be downloaded for free on the, on my dynamite hemorrhage website. Absolutely. They're great reads. 
And so you took a hiatus from that for a few years, 1998, and then Agony Shorthand was born. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, from 98 to 2003, I'm not even sure what I was doing. If I, I wasn't doing anything music related, I just, you know, maybe took a bit of a break. 2003, when blogging first became a thing, I came back and started writing for Agony Shorthand. And I basically did it in fanzine style where it was like, here's a record I listened to yesterday. I'm going to tell you why it's good and why you should listen to it. And sometimes I would do some interviews. Sometimes I would do longer pieces. Sometimes I would talk about fanzines, much as you're doing with this podcast. Um, And that lasted a few years. And that evolved into another blog, which evolved into another blog, which ultimately evolved into Dynamite Hemorrhage, which is what I do now. And with Dynamite Hemorrhage, you've decided to go print and radio show. Can you tell us about sort of the evolution, how you sort of landed there? Yeah, let's see. I'm trying to remember what it, what came first. So first came a Tumblr um, because I thought may, maybe I could put some photos up and scans of things that have been sitting around, pictures of fanzines or, or whatever, just weird ephemera from the 80s and 90s. That evolved into a podcast in late 2012, Dynamite Hemorrhage Radio, which I still do now. That then the following year evolved into the first issue of the print magazine. And I'm not really sure why. I just, I think I just had a hankering to do it again. And I had never interviewed Chris D of the Flesh Eaters, who's been a longtime you know, kind of hero of mine. Actually, I had interviewed him once before for a college radio show, but that was, you know, a long time before that. But I'd never actually kind of put it on to paper. And I was really interested in talking to him about the first two years of his career, whereas most people kind of focus on the Flesh Eaters starting in 81 when they put out A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die. I was actually interested in the sort of the 78, 79, 80 Flesh Eaters. And I got the sense, even when I was talking to him for the interview, he didn't really want to talk about that. He was a little bit embarrassed about it, but it was that was the the whole reason I did that issue. Is like I I got him to commit to this interview. I did it over the you know the phone with him. I transcribed it by hand, and now I'm going to build a fanzine around it. And here we are. I'm still doing it. Amazing. You mentioned the flesh eaters. I know you're a massive fan. Do you feel you've had some impact and exciting interest in certain acts like that, like flesh eaters, Gun Club, even other fanzines like Take It Fanzine, which was. Like a semi, like a well-known fanzine from the '80s, but like somewhat obscure in the grand scheme of things, which is now like emerged. The publisher of it is now hawking issues of it online. Do you think you had some sort of influence in that happening? Probably not in terms of take it, but um, I mean, it's possible that there has been some interest in bands like the Flesh Eaters because of things that you know I've written because I've got some stuff online that's published about them as well. But I I only really know what people have told me, things like, oh, I heard about this band because of you and it blew me away and it opened my eyes and so on and so on. It's the same sort of thing I was telling fanzine writers and college radio people 30 to 35 years ago. And that feels great, right? So I think the only direct story that I can think of is um, a current uh, Philadelphia-based band, Honey Radar, um, who I interviewed for. I interviewed them for the second issue of Dynamite Hemorrhage, so that would have been 2014. And I had started playing them obsessively at home and, and on the podcast. And one of their members told me that he'd actually been considering stopping the band around that time in, in 2014. And that having my having championed them gave them sort of a new wind and a few new fans. And that kind of grew from there. And they've continued to put out great records. So I'm not saying I'm responsible for that, but they did at least say, hey, you, you at least gave us some whatever, some wind behind our back. So that made me feel good. <laughs> a big part of zine culture in the past was correspondence, people swapping zines, sending letters to each other. Do you get feedback from readers as well? Any encouraging feedback, fan letters, other 
<laughs> wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to get a fan letter? Actually, there are still some people that will send postcards and letters, but that's like a once a year thing. But no, people still do. It's usually more about the biweekly podcast than it is about the fanzine. But when the fanzine does come out, it like instantly sells out like three, three fifths or four fifths of its print run the first week. So there's people out there who enjoy it. They're looking forward to it. And that's that feels really good. But I would say that even email correspondence has dropped off this year in, in 2020. I mean, I guess we've all got bigger things to worry about, right? <laughs> um, but I've met a ton of people through publishing, including some you know current good friends locally and people spread out all, all over the world that I'm in touch with. So yeah, I, I mean, over the years, that's the most gratifying thing is I, you know, I'll get a, you know, a, a longtime listener, first time caller email from somebody who's like, oh, I was buying your fanzine in the 90s. And I'll get something like that every couple of months. And, and I totally love those. And but I, I think I like even more hearing from someone who's like a teenager or a 20 something who's stumbling upon the sounds that I'm either playing on the podcast or, or uh, putting into the zine for the first time. You know, and that's that's really great. But I mean, I would say that because I'm long in the tooth and that's what old people say about whippersnappers, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm always curious about things like production and distribution, that infrastructure that existed in the 90s when you're doing super dope. So for like Tower Records, Desert Moon Periodicals, all of that collapsed, postage prices are way up. You've clearly sort of landed on something. You've established like the magic number of copies to print. How are you getting things out there, Jay? Yeah, it, it took a little bit of trial and error. Um, the first issue of the fanzine, which actually kind of had a high gloss cover, this is Dynamite Hemorrhage, mind you, high gloss cover and you know kind of thick pages. Those sold out very quickly because for whatever reason, forced exposure distribution took a bunch of copies and sold them all really quickly. And so I got really cocky. And so for the next one, I upped the, the run to, I don't know, 800 or something like that. And I just sold out of the last one like a few months ago. So that came out in 2014. So that took six years. So we're at 500 per issue now. And that seems to be about right. That means that usually it sticks around for about a year. So if anybody wants one during that year, they can totally get one. And that includes the last one, number seven, which came out about 11 months ago. And I still have a few copies left. And as soon as I publish the new one, which is I'm finishing basically tonight, um, that will probably sell out. And then I'll put the PDF up online. But with Superdope, it was as high as like 2000 because like you said, Tower Records would take half of those. And that was incredibly gratifying because people from, you know, England or Japan, where Tower Records was, would, would send letters back when there was no email and they would find it out there. And so now they're all sold directly. They all go through my big cartel page. And then a handful might go to, directly to record stores that I like, like um, Goner Records in Memphis or Record Grouch in Brooklyn. Um and I deliberately changed the fanzine's format because it's like much cheaper to send a half-sized 48-page magazine overseas because I know exactly how much it costs to do so. It's $4.16 to the UK and Europe. It's two fifty to Canada and three stamps in the US. Um, but, you know, so I mean, I've, I've got it down to a science. And I know that if I do these little black and white half-sized things where it's just me kind of publishing it, no ads, whatever, I know exactly what to expect. I know exactly what it's going to cost. I mean, distribution... It really sucked the life out of me, the first three issues. Like I said, forced exposure took a ton of number one, sold them in weeks. Then they could barely sell any of number two, and I had to pay them to send them back. Um, revolver revolver distribution took forever to pay me. Um, they did eventually. And like I made it, mean, it's not about the profit. I mean, I would like to break even, right? And so I did make neg negligible you know, pennies profit on each of these when I would go through a distributor. 
But you know, when I would print these things, they're a thousand dollar plus charge on the credit card. My wife doesn't like that. So every time I do one of these, it's kind of nice to make the money back a little bit. So selling direct helps a lot. You mentioned forced exposure. I know there was a feature on them in your last issue. Um, can you talk a bit about the influence of that fanzine on you and what made it so special? Yeah, I mean, it's probably sort of the peak of just my music mania was when I discovered that fanzine, and it definitely kind of helped it along. It's a true influence, not only on my original fanzine efforts, but a lot of my musical taste as well. Um, like you said, I wrote about it extensively in the most recent issue of Dynamite Hemorrhage Fanzine, and I dissected every issue, just as I have in real life. I mean, I've read those things over and over again. Um, and I was, you know, very much into music before Force Exposure, but I became this kind of record collecting freak devoted to really deep sub underground music once I really started hearing and, and digging for the music that they were covering, which was was very inspiring. You discovered Force Exposure. Was this after their kind of hardcore years, the first couple yes. of years? Yeah, because those if those were available on the West Coast, I didn't know anything about it. The first one I ever bought was the one with Lydia Lunch on the cover, which I believe is number 10. And so that would have been that was my first week of college. So I came down to Santa Barbara from the San Francisco Bay Area, went to the local record store. The very first day I saw this fanzine on the rack, I said, this looks interesting. I bought it. And I would say that year my tastes evolved from being kind of new wavy to being very sort of, you know, deep record collector, sub underground, whatever it is that I'm in to now. Would you say Byron Coley is, has been like a formative influence on your writing? He's been a major influence in many ways because he has always dug really deep into like, you know, the various crevices of underground rock and, and non-rock. And he's always seemed to pull up a lot of the best stuff, you know, the weirdest tapes, the weirdest 45s and whatnot, stuff that only he and, and guys like Tom Lax, Silbreeze, um knew about. And he would champion it and you'd hear it and you'd think, wow, that's amazing. And he would do that for all sorts of genres. He would do it for, you know, Americana rock. He'd do it for garage punk, for noise, for Captain Beefheart inspired stuff and weird Japanese psych records. So I, I have to say I built my initial record collection off that man's taste, <laughs> but <laughs> writing style, not as much. I mean, he's, he's got a quicker wit than I do and he's a, mu he's much more skating than I've ever been. I just, I'm not that into it. So when I, when I wrote that big piece in dynamite hemorrhage seven, I tried to call him out like, and Jimmy Johnson, the editor of force exposure for some of the, like the, the, the doofus things and the, you know, even just outright hostile stuff that they did at force exposure. Like it really bugged me that they would talk about drugs the way a 15 year old talks about drugs. And they, these guys were like twice that age. Um, they maligned homosexuals and just like lesser annoyances and okay so it was the 80s whatever but they would also at the same time go after targets like um the san francisco kind of west west coast punk rock progressives people like uh Jello Biafra and Tim Yohannan in ways that I thought were really funny and <laughs> I agreed with I took I took great delight in that and um it's because I used to listen, like I was saying, to Maximum Rock and Roll on KPFA um, on every Tuesday night, just religiously. And I would listen to their, their rap sessions about how this is, this is you know, Jello and Tim and those guys, and, you know, how this band or that band were capitalists and they were no better than Reagan because they flew on a plane to a gig. And so when these guys from the East Coast would go after them in this very humorous and cutting way, I found it very hilarious and a, and a real breath of fresh air. Did you ever read Coley's Chuck Norris bio? Are you that kind of deep a fan? Or no, no. Don't no, have to go I, there. I, there's no, there, there's, there's not enough years in life to make. And he also did a Motley Crue one. I, I think he wrote under a pseudonym. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So no, I, I don't, I don't need to do that. I'll have to get really bored before I reach for something like that. <laughs>
do you know anything about Jimmy Johnson? Like, I've never seen a photo online. He's somebody I, I'm keen to know a bit more about personally, but does not seem to have any sort of presence online. Does he actually exist? Is- yeah, he does. And, you know, I no, I don't know him personally, but we have corresponded a couple of times because, like I said, they were the main distributor at one point for Dynamite Hemorrhage. Um, yeah, he I think it's very deliberate. I don't think he wants to have much of a presence and good for him. He started the original Force Exposure. So before Coley came aboard, when it was a hardcore magazine, it was pretty much him and a woman who took photos. And so that was like the first four issues, four, four or five issues. And then Coley came aboard and it became the magazine that you can still find these days. But no, he and then as Force Exposure was tailing off, he did a he turned it into a distribution, and that was really his thing. And I think Byron kind of backed off and started doing his own thing. So, no, I I, I think he's definitely. I mean, they're still doing it to this day. He's made a complete vocation out of it. Yeah, no, it's it's a legit uh, it's a legit operation for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned your next issue of Dynamite Hemorrhage is devoted to Slash Magazine, which you've also described somewhere as like just about a perfect fanzine. What did they get so right? Yeah, this was this is my pet project for the last couple of months. So I've been very immersed in Slash. I mean, Slash is not something clearly that I was around buying when it came out because I was 10 years old. But once I discovered it later, it, it's, it's very clear that they introduced this very sort of literate flair to American punk rock journalism, such as it was. And But it was very sneering, too. They had this very sneering sensibility that they had mu- better musical taste than most of their readers did. And they did. <laughs> so I, I, when you go back and read it, you're just like, wow, they were really spot on. And as punk was evolving into post-punk or something else, I mean, it was just clear that they were sort of kind of tracking it and understanding it. And instead of like going, oh, well, this doesn't sound like, you know, the weirdos, they would just jump aboard a band like The Fall that everybody thinks is very legendary now. And they were kind of seeing that very early on. Um you know, I, like I said, I missed all of this when I was, I was a young teenager when these were coming out, but they also had this very visual flair. And when you go back and look at the issues, there's a real sort of, this is what happened this month in Los Angeles punk. And it makes every issue a total blast to go back and look at. So my new issue, I decided, well, one way to sort of capture that is I'll go and look at one particular issue and just sort of dissect that and just sort of like, this is kind of how they would cover things at the time. So I looked at the August 1979 issue, I believe. And you can see how, like I was saying, punk is morphing into what we now call post-punk and how there are some people who are feeling that something amazing has already died and others like Claude Bessie, the editor, Kickboy Face, he's really excited about what's coming up, especially from the UK. So he's like talking about the pop group and the fall and even like the early stirrings of hardcore from Black Flag, this brand new band from the South Bay that they're all super excited excited about. So it's just really a blast to read. And it's just sort of this, you are there moment in time, every time they would put one of these out, which was every month. Do you think there's something, there, there's sort of like a category of rock writer who who sort of lived the life Like you and I are, well, speaking for you, you seem like a very normal person who writes as a normal person, like Byron Coley, Claude Bessie, Lester Banks, Meltzer, <laughs> all these guys are like, they're like rock and roll lifers. This is probably like the only thing that they could do. And they're probably like, like I'm sure they're jerks in some ways. Does, I don't even know if there's a question <laughs> in here, but is there something different that they bring to the table? It, like, 
Well, the willingness to go out on a limb and be a jerk, I think actually can make for some very entertaining reading. And I don't think Coley's necessarily like that anymore, but when he was in his 20s, he definitely wrote that way. Claude Bessie was in his 30s and he very much, that was his whole persona. And apparently that's what he was like in real life too, if you ask people. But they also say he was really sweet. If he was your friend, you you know, he was like wonderful and he was really great to his, his wife and, you know, all that stuff. So sometimes it's a bit of a put on, sometimes it isn't. I've never, you know, I've, I'm not a lifer, I don't think. I, I don't, at least I, I have not self-defined as someone who, I'm, you know, I've always been sort of punk and music adjacent. It's a hobby. It's, you know, I keep my, my work life and my family life and my hobbies very separate. Fanzine publishing is very much a hobby. It's, it's an avocation, something I definitely don't define myself by. Now, do your work colleagues know about your extracurricular activities? Has your boss sat you down and said, Jay, who are the brain bombs I keep hearing about? <laughs> God, no. Um, no, not, not a boss. I mean, it's one of those things just, you know, you keep on the download, mostly not because it's anything embarrassing. It's mostly because people just would have no idea or they wouldn't be interested. But and I've had I've had many jobs over the years and some colleagues have known about it and most most of them haven't. But some of the more talented kind of graphic designers or photographers that have helped me in the magazine have come from work because it's like, well, I don't know anybody who, who I certainly can't lay anything out and I don't know how to take a picture. So what about Nicole at work who does know how to take photos? So she was like my photographer for Superdrug. Um, you know, usually it's like the weirdos and more interesting people in a corporate job are usually graphic designers or photographers and sometimes marketers. And that's kind of the, the corporate tech world that I've tended to work in. So, you know, you can always seek those people out and you can find the kindred spirit at work that might want to help you out. <laughs> You've got a great story about being wined and dined um, by a group of people in China and giving a talk about fanzines. Can you share that story with us, Jay? Yeah, that that's wild. That's like that's a recent story. And so let's see, 2018. So I get this email that said, Hello, um, I am so and so, and I represent the Tomorrow Festival in Shenzhen, China. And we want you to come out and give a talk about blogs and fanzines. And, you know, it was written in kind of poor English. It sounded like it might be a phishing scam. You know, it wasn't from Nigeria, but it was from from China. And I was just baffled by it. Um, so I did a little bit of online searching. It's like, well, actually, it looks like this Tomorrow Festival in Shenzhen is actually a thing. So I asked a guy named uh, Brian Turner, who do, uh, was on WFMU for many years, does, you know, did a longtime radio show there, and it still does a uh, podcast. Brian Turner, I was like, Brian, is this real? Because I knew Brian's super plugged in. And he's like, yeah, actually, they asked me to do something last year, and I couldn't get the visa, but it's totally real. So I wrote them back, and I said, well, it sounds really interesting, but I can't pay for a trip to China. You know, I'm not going to do that. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. We'll fly you over. We'll put you in a hotel. You'll get a stipend, all this stuff. So basically, long and short of it is I was flown in May of 2018 to Hong Kong, which is just outside of Shenzhen. Uh, a driver picked me up at the airport. <laughs> I, I was brought into China. I gave a 90-minute talk about the history of underground music fanzines to an audience that probably had never really seen fanzines before. I was asked... You know, I had some um, photographs of some English fanzines in my presentation that actually talked about revolution and things like that. And I was told I had to take those pictures out because the word revolution is verboten in China. And that they, they even told me there will probably be a minder watching your talk, you know, standing in the back or something. So you want to make sure you don't do stuff like that. But actually, the, the degree of leeway and freedom I had to talk about stuff was much more than I would have expected. Like there, there are 
you know, underground music weirdos in China. There's a weird record store in Shenzhen um, that sells, you know, Japanese psych records and New Zealand underground records and, and American punk records. It's great. Um, anyway, so yeah, it was, it was bizarre. It was like a four day thing. And then I was flown back home and I still can't believe it actually happened. <laughs> it's that's bizarre. amazing. Yeah, really, really strange. I mean, that's if one thing has ever made it worth it, it was that. Awesome. I hope they ask you back, man. Yeah, me too. Now, do you keep up with rock writing these days, Jay? Anybody who's inspiring you? Um, yeah, yeah. There's definitely some stuff still out there. I mean, you got to dig pretty deep for it. But as far as like inspiration, um, I don't know if you know the fanzine Vulture, Eddie Flowers. Um, oh, yeah. He was, yeah. So it's not, it's not so much because Eddie's writing is so amazing or his taste, you know, aligns perfectly with mine, but he's like an unabashed music fiend. He's still publishing at 65, 70 years old. I actually don't know how old he is. He's just, I know he's quite a bit older than I am. And I, I just think it's fantastic that he's still doing that and putting out such a, a high level magazine. It's Vulture, V-U-L-C-H-E-R, if people haven't heard of it. And then um, a woman named Erica Elizabeth, who wrote for Dynamite Hemorrhage 1, 2, and 3, and she's written for Maximum Rock and Roll, and she does stuff online and a podcast now called Futures and Pass. She's actually been very inspirational to me. Like my discovery of her radio show on WMUA in Massachusetts was like a huge reason I even did my own music podcast and ultimately Fancy. And I think I discovered that probably 2010 or 2011. And she sort of kickstarted or re-kickstarted my enthusiasm because she's, she's such a rabid music, a rabid music fan herself. She's like 20 years younger than I am, and she knows twice as much about music as I do. So she's she's great. And then there's a fanzine um, that recently wrapped up uh, called For Domning from Gothenburg, Sweden. And so Matthias Anderson, who put out For Domning, he's probably the most inspirational person recently for me. He also made a digest-sized fanzine. And even though I had made those before in the 90s with Superdope, he re-inspired me to do it again, black and white, no ads, totally DIY. So he's obviously a Swedish guy, but he writes in perfect English. He has really offbeat and interesting musical taste. And you can tell he's just constantly evolving and growing what he listens to and champions. Um, he stopped the fan I think last year, and now he runs a record store in Gothenburg. Yeah. Oh, a couple, a couple other fanzines. I actually made made a note. I wanted to make sure. So there's one from your hometown called Celluloid Lunch, that's really good, and it, from Toronto. And then there's one called Psycho Disco from France, which is in French, but it's beautiful and really cool. And I actually have a little piece in the most recent issue, which I haven't seen yet. But I'm not mentioning it just because of that. It's also a really cool fanzine, especially if you can read French. Can you read French? No, no. I, can read. <laughs> I, I know what je, je suis means and, um, you know, fromage. I can pick out a few words. <laughs> you got it. You think you were born and raised in Canada. With that. That's yeah, amazing. I write. I am cheese. That's about all I can do. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel, you, you mentioned Eddie Flower still doing a print scene all these years later. Do you feel like a sense of responsibility to carry the torch for your generation of scene writers and, and for this style of music as well? Uh, I got to say, I mean, there's really no sense of responsibility or duty or, or obligation of any kind. Um, too lofty. It's just it, too lofty. It's something to do for fun. And because music and records continue to be very invigorating, I really still have no shortage of inspiration. Um, you know, I guess like championing, championing the artists that I like, you know, 
if I don't do this, maybe no one else will. That's kind of, there's sometimes a sense of that. But honestly, if I like a band, there's probably somebody else out there who does too. And they're writing about them or playing them on college radio or putting them on a mixed cloud podcast or something. I, I'm definitely hoping to inspire others, but mostly to listen to what I want them to listen to, which is what I like. Do you have any musical blind spots, Jay? Any bands that you just never got, tried to, but just never clicked? Yeah, I mean, the the one I always go to is The Clash, just because I've never liked The Clash. Um, They're a fun the, band to hate, actually. Yeah, yeah, and and people have been hating them ever since they came out. So that's 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 not exactly um, you know a new concept. Um, but yeah, there's a few others. I, uh, the Raincoats is a band who a lot of people really love that I've never quite understood. Um, the Dictators, you know, another sort of mid '70s band. Uh, they're not really blind spots. They're just bands I don't like, but that many others did. And there's, of course, dozens of and dozens of modern examples, I'm sure. But I think I've gotten very good at sort of ignoring stuff that I'm not interested in. So most everything goes right over my head. But back when it really mattered, like, well, what band do you like? What band do you not like? Those would be bands that other people were championing that I just wasn't into. And any bands that you like that would surprise us, like Closet REM fan, anything out there? I saw REM. I, I, Did you? you know, I, saw, I saw R.E.M. in the mid-80s uh, and I was still in high school. They played with the, the Three O'Clock and True West and in Santa Cruz, California. And that was a really fun show. But That'd be a I great mean, gig, yeah. It was. It was. I really enjoyed myself. Um, my tastes are always evolving. I'm still as interested in discovering kind of new or archival music as I've ever been. Um, and like every few years, I'll dive really deeply into a new genre that I only know a little bit about. So like 20 or 25 years ago, I got really into dub. Um, 15 years ago, it was folk. I've always loved country music, especially 60s and 70s stuff. About five years ago, I started buying free jazz, which I didn't know a whole lot about. There was an African phase in there as well. <laughs> um, I guess as far as like surprising bands go, I'm I'm a fan of Kate Bush ever since I was in high school. <laughs> That's not one that typically gets played on the podcast, but I think she's great. I enjoy um, the the modern or the hardcore thrash band DRI. I was just l listening to them no. yesterday. Yeah, they're That's ridiculous, sick. right? They're fantastic. Yeah, I love I love it. Four <laughs> yeah. of a kind and. Uh, well, yeah, the, that's like the metalcore years. This is, I mean, the, the, the earliest, I saw them too in probably 86 or so, and they were phenomenal. So um, I never stopped listening to Susie and the Banshees. That was like a high school favorite of mine. Um, oh, they're great. Yeah, of course. And and I, I there's this modern country singer named Courtney Marie Andrews, who I really like. She's, she's fantastic. And yeah, there's always something that doesn't quite fit whatever narrative, you know, I, I typically will play on the podcast or put in the magazine. But I mean, I, I try to not limit myself to weird underground rock. Before I let you go, can we do a lightning round? Just a quick, like, just really rapid fire questions. I've just got right. a few fun ones here for you. Okay. All right. At least I think they're kind I'm of ready. Fun. I'm ready. Okay. Most underrated fanzine most underrated fanzine um let's see so you mentioned take it take it's a really good one you know one that's pretty underrated that i don't think gets quite as much love is conflict which uh, gerard cosley who you know did homestead records and later matador records i mean because those haven't been reprinted you really have to find them and dig deep for those uh that that's great um yeah uh that magazine drunken fish in the 1990s i think they only did one one issue that was terrific. Um, Tom Lax's fanzine Silt Breeze, which was a fanzine before he had a label of the same name. You know, his taste is fantastic. So that's a great fanzine. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot, actually. <laughs> we could go on for a long time, but this is the lightning round. So I'll go with those. 
Those are great ones. Most overrated fanzine. Yeah, that's easy. Um, punk fanzine, the New York fanzine. I, I, I've i never, I thought that was such a doofus fanzine. I mean, it's very beautifully laid out and I, I like kind of the handwritten text, but yeah, that's that never spoke to me. I never read it actually. Never, yeah. never picked up an issue. I can, I can picture the covers in my mind, but yeah, the John Holmstrom covers, lots of stuff about the Ramones. Yeah, just not, not my thing. I mean, you could make a case that Touch and Go, the the early '80s hardcore fanzine that that Tesco V put out, and the label grew out of that. That was, you know, actually nothing special. I mean, hey, maybe Super Dope. Super Dope could be overrated. It definitely had, like I said, some very, very cringy moments that I can't look at. No, I. It, okay, I'm glad a, you begged to differ. That, that's a, no, yeah. no, no. I do beg to differ. Okay. Maximum rock and roll or flip side? Um, probably flip side. Yeah, I would. I'll go with flip side. We'll just leave it at that. Ugly things or kicks? Ah, uh, that's a good one. I that that's almost a tie. Um, ugly things still going. Kicks, you know, kicks was pretty interesting fanzine though and that and they did something that no one else had done i think uh, ugly things can be very annoying just because of the constant sort of repetition like the creation the downliner sect the pretty things but at the same time good for him and that's a true fanzine you know that's like his favorite bands that's what he wants to talk about and then you know what 20 years ago he started actually bringing in 70s stuff and then later some 80s stuff but maybe if i had to split hairs i'll go with kicks nice but yeah that's a tough one for sure they're both inspiring as heck they are absolutely and i can't believe that mike sack still puts out ugly things and it's still this giant thing and it's just full of of interesting stuff and records you've never heard of so good good on him and he makes a living at this he did a ted talk a few years ago talking about how he makes a living from his magazine this is it seems unreal but i watched it with my wife it's he is making the ends meet (laughs) doing ugly things somehow there must be a side hustle or two in there but armin there's hope for us man if there if if he can get a ted talk that's my next goal that's that's what i'm going to be doing next definitely just gotta get in touch with the ted talk people i'm gonna start start with your podcast and work up from there okay (laughs) ted talk next year that's that's my way up brother (laughs) search and destroy or nomag I'm going to go with Nomag, but that's also sort of splitting hairs. Um, Nomag was a very interesting visual fanzine um, that kind of grew out of Slash and kind of took it in some weird directions. I don't think the writing was quite as good. The writing was probably better in Search and Destroy, but Search and Destroy had that sort of San Francisco peace progressive edge to it that sort of kind of flavored everything, where everything was just sort of like Reagan sucks, blah, 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 and just, you know, strike for the miners. And and, and I'm not saying that stuff's bad. I, I actually like that, that aspect of late 70s punk, but but Search and Destroy was very San Francisco uh, for, for, for the good and the bad that, that comes with that. Whereas Slash in LA, I don't think, I don't know. It, well, actually, you asked about Nomad, which was also a Los Angeles magazine. I don't, I'm going to give the edge to Nomad for this one. So based on what you just said, I think I know the answer to the next one. NorCal or SoCal Punk? Uh, SoCal punk for sure. I live, I've lived in Northern California almost my entire life. And I will definitely say NorCal for living for sports teams and you know, whatever, all the other stupid NorCal versus SoCal stuff. But my favorite era for music of any time is like Los Angeles, 1977 to 1982 or so. There's so many great bands from that time. It's like the pinnacle scene of sub underground rock and roll history, as far as I'm concerned. And last Flesh Eaters album, yay or nay? Christy is not listening to this, so you can you can. He might. He might be. Um, well, 
so I'll say it two ways. For the first is I, I don't think I really heard it other than like the preview song, which I think was um, a cover of Cinderella, the, the Sonic Cinderella, or there was a video of it. And I was like, okay, cool. That's fine. And I saw them play some of the songs from the new record, but I just didn't feel like going deep into it. But I say, yay, like good for them. I mean, who would have thought if you had told me in 1980, whatever, that the flesh eaters would be playing in San Francisco in 2019 and I could go to it, you know, I, with, you know, the minute to pray second to die lineup, I, I would have been amazed. Like, are you serious? <laughs> it's like, like those guys aren't dead yet. So they played and they were great and they did the whole album and they did some other things and some, some strange covers. So I'm, I'm, to I'm all in favor. It's just, I'm not sure that that's like a record that I necessarily need to listen to, which, you know, is no slight, no slight on them. Thank you, Jay, and thank you, listeners. Please head over to dynamitehemorrhage.com, your headquarters for all things Hinman. There you can peruse back issues, listen to the bi-weekly radio show podcast, and order yourself a copy of Dynamite Hemorrhage number 8, Jay's 48-page must-have love letter to Slash Magazine. It's just the thing for a cherished friend's stocking or that magazine rack you have mounted on your toilet. A new episode of Rockrit will be up in two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider leaving a review and telling a friend. And thank you for listening. Thank <laughs> you.